Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's Contours podcast, a production of the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. My name is Nick Harris, and I'm the Senior Analyst and Head of the State Resilience and Fragility Program here at the New Lines Institute. Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Kadami is traveling to Washington, D.C. to meet with a range of Biden administration officials, including with President Joe Biden himself in what will be the first time the two world leaders have met face to face. To discuss Mustafa Kadami's visit to Washington and what he has done over the course of the more than the year that he has been Prime Minister of Iraq, I'm joined by my colleagues Caroline Rose and Rasha Alakidi. Caroline, Rasha, and I will be grading Kadami's term in office to date, and we'll discuss what to look for moving forward in U.S. policy in Iraq, dynamics inside Iraq, and the geopolitical consequences of U.S.-Iraqi engagements. Rasha, what grade would you give Mustafa Kadami? I have, I have teachers in my family, professors all the way from elementary school to college professors. And the one thing, the one student that frustrates them the most is the student who is capable, who has the knowledge, who has the background and has the time to study and perform well, but chooses not to for whatever reasons. Uh, He might think that he doesn't need to study very well and perform regardless. He might think that the teacher uh, is going to be merciful that day and not grade him too harshly. And that student usually gets the lowest grades, different from someone who puts in a lot of effort and for whatever reason does not do well on the exam. Mustafa Kalami falls into the first category. He has international support. He had, I'm going to say had, because I'm not so sure we can say has anymore, but he did have some level of domestic support, the will of the people, even the Marja'iyah, to push him into accomplishing a few things and reluctantly he chose not to. Even the few things that he did regarding corruption were not good enough. Even the the uh, recent announcement of the assassin of Hisham al-Hashimi, it was also a bit lackluster. He left out some details, which kind of backfired. If I were to grade him on his performance inside Iraq, I would give him the D. But Rasha, can I just break in here quickly? Because I feel like you're grading Kadhmi a bit harshly. I mean, he inherited <laughs> a system that was a mess, at least for the better part of two ge- decades. Yeah. Um, he came onto the scene after the Trump administration essentially assassinated Qasem Soleimani, creating a, a really tumultuous internal situation in Iraq. Kadhmi was the compromise candidate between the U.S. and Iran. And of course, as you know, the U.S. and Iran are the most important geopolitical actors in mm-hmm. Iraq. I mean, this the Biden team, and by the way, it seems like this will be the first in-person meeting between Kadhmi and Joe Biden, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, that will happen on Monday. You know, my question to you is, it seems like the Biden team looks at him as a great leader. Uh, they've An excellent leader, even. Someone who's mm-hmm. pragmatic, gets things done. And they've even emphasized the Biden team that it's because of Qadami that Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and some of the others, we'll call them Sunni Arab actors, are actually reinvested in Iraq. So what do you say to that? I say that because the standards for an Iraqi prime minister are actually so low 
that a C minus is actually considered a good performance. That's why Kalami, if you compare him to Nouri al-Maliki, he is a prime minister that the United States can actually talk to. That, as you mentioned, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, regional allies, even Iran, to some extent, they can get along with. That was different from other prime ministers. And the United States is focusing on one thing, and that's overall stability. If Kalami can deliver that, and the situation does not is not out of control in Iraq. That is how they're grading him. My grade and okay, I will be nicer. I'll give him a C minus. I'm not. <laughs> I've upgraded a bit. I'll give him a C minus. Is that in Iraq? He he could have done more, and I am aware of that of his of the restraints and the context of of the country security wise. Um, there is basically a parallel state also that is very very strong and being empowered by the minutes. And that's exactly why there were uh, there were things that he could have done better, but he decided not to. Uh, corruption, for one, um, the economic deals between Iraq and Lebanon, that was clearly under the pressure of of the sort of, of the resistance camp. There were things that he did not resist. Even his attitude towards the October protests, uh, in some way, he he utilized, or I want to say exploited, actually, the fact that he came as prime minister because Adil Abdel Mahdi was forced to resign because of the protests. Now, the protesters did not choose him. And we had an activist on a podcast a few months back explain this to us. But he did kind of, he really milked that. He really used that. He came after the protest. At the same time, he did all all he could to to, to make sure that these that these act, that these activists were were subsided. So he supported the protest initially and the activists and guaranteed that he would make sure justice was brought about and that the their attackers and their assassins and the people who tortured them would be put behind bars he did none of that and not only that he he neutralized the protest movement uh, by actually employing some of the activists um, and making sure that they were giving pro-government sign, not necessarily with inside the movement, but even within civil society. He attempted at least. Uh, so he clearly does not want an opposition. And for him to actually come on, come on becoming the premiership post post Adil Abdel Mahdi to give all those promises and then not carry out any of them has been perhaps the most frustrating thing. Um, and then we look at what has happened in, in Iraq ever since, just this, just since the beginning of the year. We've had two hospital burns that just caught on fire, killing scores of people. Uh, the total number is 144, I believe, between two hospitals. We had the suicide attack in February in the in a very populated market and recently in Southern City. So even security wise, there are things that are essential that he's not taking care of. So while I appreciate that, yes, he can come to the United States and still claim that he's a friend or an ally, that he can meet with different international leaders. And I'm kind of happy that makes them feel better, but it's not its not really serving Iraq. Caroline, can I just jump in here and ask you a question? Because I believe that you know one of the reasons the Biden team appreciates Qadami is that they think he's the guy that can oversee this transition of the counter-ISIS mission in Iraq. And I want to get your take on that. Yeah, well, I... I'd like to jump in and, and say that it, this is a really fascinating debate because when grading Kadami, there's the question of what are the standards of success? And for example, in my opinion, I think really, um, you know, if he was being tested objectively, he should get an F. But do we give him the curve? Do we curve the grade? And therefore, would he receive like a D or a C? 
because when you know, when asked what grade would I give Kotomi, I would give him an F in that the citizens of Iraq have been ultimately betrayed um, by a lot of this balancing act um, that that Kotomi has been playing between Iran and the United States. However, he's been playing it to a degree of success because he's been able to retain U.S. presence in Iraq for longer than I originally thought he would have been able to. Because at the beginning of 2020, the United States started um, this, this trend of withdrawals, transferred out of eight bases, um, reduced the U.S. presence uh, from 5,000 personnel, not including contractors, to now 2,500. And towards the end of the Trump administration, it looked like we were really going to uh, put out a timetable for official withdrawal. And then crickets, nothing. Um, and now we're kind of getting this this very interesting, uh, you know, he said, she said, oh, we're going to transition forces to a non-combat role, even though we've already been there for a few months. Uh, so we're, we're getting mixed messages, but we're not getting a clear answer of whether the U.S. forces are going to withdraw or not. And I think to a degree, Kadami and his and his government, they've been able to lobby the U.S. government to, to stay and retain a degree of presence uh, and receive a degree of intelligence support, logistical support and training from the Operation Inherent Resolve mission. And so I think that that to a degree should definitely be counted in for a grade on economy but you know like rasha mentioned she's she's really she's really right in the aspect that this balancing aspect has hurt iraqi citizens there was a raid in june 2020 um on uh Khatib hezbollah it was like on june 25th and uh cts the counterterrorism service they raided this uh in one of the headquarters of kh and after a while, they they detained them, but then they released them immediately afterwards. And when they were detained, they were sitting in these gold-plated seats, uh, you know, just casually waiting for a few hours until they were released. And there was, you know, rumors that Kadami also did this um, with the approval or at least the knowledge uh, that, you know, the, that they corresponded with the IRGC on this. Uh, so, you know, there's this very careful balancing act at play. And I think that a lot of Iraqis and including the United States, they recognize this. They recognize that Kadami is not necessarily always in the U.S.'s corner um, and not necessarily always in the Iraqi people's corner as well. And so while I am sympathetic to a degree of how Kadami has to play both sides and, uh, you know, out of concern of both his personal safety and then also, uh, you know, with the, this larger geopolitical balancing act that he has to play. Uh, I think that the U.S. definitely should pressure him on more accountability and being a bit more upfront about things. I'm, I'm just not so sure that Kalani and the Iraqi government have been successful at lobbying the U.S. to stay. I think it's more just it's, it's that's the U.S. policy. The United States at this point is just not ready to is not ready to leave. There could be the ISIS activities on the ground becoming more observant as we see. Um, they're becoming more vigilant, taking their, I mean, the way that ISIS have have attacked, have been attacking recently, it's not only a, you know, it's not only a throwback to 2006, how they were operating. It's a lot more sophisticated and more careful. They're less, they're less suicidal kind of in that way in that they want to maintain as much as they can. This is a new strategy that they're adopting and the United States can see, sees that. So um, that operation is ongoing. There's also the Syria angle. 
in addition to perhaps other geopolitical um, leverage that United States wants to maintain, I don't think Colomy, uh, I, I could be mistaken, I don't think Colomy has been the ones who's successful at um, actually keeping, keeping the US. I agree, however, yes, when it comes to balancing, if we're going to be fair, this is pretty much all he can do. I, I don't think, I don't believe he can be on the Iraq side, the Iraqi side any better than he already is. And um, and that that is unfortunate. As Nick was saying, he did inherit a very chaotic situation. Uh, on on the domestic, it's just on the domestic level. That's the that's the frustrating issues. If we if we step away a little bit from geopolitics, let's just look at corruption. Um, when a tragedy happens, like the hospital catching fire, which is in itself crazy, the least he can do is hold people accountable. That has not happened. Now, these are things I have a hard time believing that Iran interferes with. I don't think, let's not blame the IRGC for not holding these people accountable. I don't believe the United States is preventing this. The same thing with, with the electricity. There are things that as a prime minister, he should do just basic things that are also so simple. And I think he's really squandered his chances of of getting reelected or being reappointed because he wasn't elected. But Rush, I just want to break in here because the Biden team is actually highlighting the fact that Kadami is the one who's brokering agreements. They might not be coming quick, but they're coming steady. And, you know, slow and steady might win the race. And it seems that the Biden team is saying, look, Kadami is a guy. He inherited a tough situation. He's doing the best he can, but he's the only person that we have right now who can make a deal with the Jordanians, who can make a deal with the GCC, who can get the Saudis on board. I mean, you had Ken Abdullah II visit Washington last week. Reportedly, Ken Abdullah II from Jordan was very much pushing the fact that the United States should continue to be engaged in Iraq and actually should make Iraq a wheel that turns a broader regional policy. Now, we have discussions between the Iraqis and the Jordanians about linking the Iraqi electrical grid to the Jordanian electrical grid to reduce the uh, influence that Iran's electoral, elect, electoral electrical grid has in Iraq to reduce the requirements that Iraq needs from Iran for electricity. So the administration is highlighting these facts that, yes, look, it's not perfect. No one said it was going to be perfect, but we're making some progress. So I want to ask you, Kadami. Is he a turtle? And can he win this race? <laughs> um, turtle. I mean, we hear about these agreements. We don't know their details. Uh, they kind of also sound like they're serving Egypt and Jordan, perhaps more even than Iraq. That's at least a little that I've heard. Um, so he's trying his best. I think Kabami, I don't know if I would call him a turtle. I mean, I, I get I get the uh, the analogy here, but Kabami is also all about optics. I don't think he has a clue how much this is backfiring on him. Uh, I can this is I think this is another. We'll talk about this later. But back to your question, is he a turtle? I don't think he can win this race. I don't necessarily think he's a turtle. I think I think turtles, although they're very very slow, they're also very determined. I think he lacks determination too. Okay, so Caroline, I want to ask you to jump in here because this question the, of determination, from your perspective, if you were sitting in the NSC right now and you were briefing to the administration the case for Academy, what would it be? Well, that's a, that's a good question. And before I answer that, I also want to just quickly touch upon a point that Rasha made. 
and it's this question of whether like Cotomi has been successful with lobbying. I agree with you. There's no way to really know and likely not. I think that likely the United States, there is an imperative there where they they're not they're too afraid to completely withdraw too fast, make the same mistake that we did before. So I agree with you that this in, in many ways is the Biden administration itself. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration stopped right before the inauguration and, you know, the Biden administration was hesitant um, and they've been very cautious in Iraq. Uh, so, you know, I think a part of this, this is also the U.S., uh, you know, trying to, to make that calculation as well. But I would like to mention that uh, especially this this weird mixed messaging and the mixed signals that we've received over the past week, that still to a degree is an advantage to Cotomy. Um, just because you know he's able to go home to Iraq with somewhat of a win. If he can make a narrative out of it, it's somewhat of a win, right? Saying that, look, we had another strategic dialogue with the United States. They're making they're making ground on uh, on withdrawing. And you know now we're making the official transition to a non-combat role, even mm-hmm. though, on paper and off paper, uh, the United States has already made that transition yeah. pretty much since November, since November of last year. So, uh, you know, politically, especially ahead of the elections, if Cotomy can, you know, make this into a win, um, you know, this could be a really big advantage for him. And I'm sure the United States is, you know, not is kind of dancing and beating around the bush, knowing that this could be a potential political win for Cotomy. Uh, just because of again, you know, when he in this in these upcoming elections, there's so many different factions that he has to appease. Uh, that you know, this this could certainly be something that he could create into a win. Now, in terms of how I would brief the National Security Council on why Cotomy is a horse to back, I'm not necessarily sure if I would say he's a horse to back. Um, but rather the the best choice that the United States has at the mo- at the moment. Um, you know, like like Rasha mentioned, he he has experience, he has relationships. Um, you know, you can be sympathetic for Cotomy to an extent, um, but really at this point, there's there's not many other choices. He's a caretaker prime minister essentially, um, and like and you know, Rasha made made a really good point where he's got the potential. That's the sad part about all of this is that he has the potential. He knows, uh, you know, how the game is played. However, uh, when it comes to to really the the end of it, it it's, it's going to be very hard to put Cotomy entirely in the United States corner. It's just impossible in this political and security landscape in Iraq. Um, and, you know, at, and at this point, especially as the U.S. is looking at a uh, eventual withdrawal, it's going to be um, very difficult to try and change that reality in Iraq. So can I pick up on this thread a little bit? There are still over 1 million internally displaced people in Iraq, many of whom were displaced by the ISIS war. Um, you know, Rasha, I want to ask you this point. Um, if you're one of those 1 million IDPs in Iraq, do you feel like Kadami has done anything for you? I believe those IDPs in Iraq have given up on the entire political process, whether it's Kadami or anyone else. The state has felt them miserably. Uh, I find one thing Iraqis like to take pride in, especially when they travel abroad, they say we don't have homeless people in Iraq in the sense that we see them in certain U.S. states or in Europe because they don't even consider the IDPs uh, homeless. 
that's how disconnected they are from the rest of the country. What what consecutive Iraqi governments have succeeded in is really, um, how do I say this? They've they've succeeded they've succeeded in dehumanizing IDPs so much that to a huge extent the rest of Iraq doesn't even care about them. So for an IDP, if you tell him that, very rarely will you get an answer beyond like they're all the same. They don't care about us. Um, so. That's another that's another venue actually that Kavami could have tapped in with any with with any of his political affiliates. The thing with Kavami in elections is that he was he was a you know he basically came as a compromise between different parties. So the pro-Iran factions were okay with him. The rest were okay with him. The United States said, okay, this person does not have any blood on his hands so far. We can we can we can work with him. He's decent. Uh, but he he has not he does not have backing from any political party. So that's that's one of the reasons also that I believe that why he's not so motivated to take on such initiatives. And when time comes, you have political politicians like Khamis al-Khanjar, Mohammed al-Halbusi, who is currently the uh, parliament speaker. These are the ones who approach the IDPs and they still no one no one trusts them. And uh, they also will struggle a lot with voting. So the voting process and the, pol the political process as a whole is not as important to them. But looking just at, at what does Kavami want? Does, does he want to be the next prime minister? Does he feel, um, given looking at the optics, and, and Caroline, you brought up a really good point of how he's going to come back to Iraq with this victory of, I forced the US troops, and this is a narrative that he perhaps can compete with the resistance factions with that I forced U.S. troops to change their role from combat to advisory. The, the Iraq has no, no longer has any combat troops or occupation forces, as they like to call them, even though we know that's not the situation. And uh, we know that this has been the reality for, for some time now. Optics means so much to him. If we look at the, his recent activities in the country at a very domestic level, um, and also, you know, the, the United States is kind of tapping into this. I don't, not sure it's very helpful, but um, meeting up with with uh, YouTubers, young people, TikTok stars, while you have tra tragedies that have happened that have killed hundreds of people and not doing anything about those, but actually meeting up with a comedian, for example, like a young TikTok uh, user in Iraq who's basically a comedian who makes sarcastic videos. He met up with him recently and said, I know you made a video about the situation in the country. And there are rumors that he actually employed him uh, within the state to monitor social media or for something like a social media manager for him, something similar. Like it, it's so far, it's just a rumor. These optics are backfiring severely on a domestic level. But it, lo it, it looks like he's trying to build a portfolio for himself where he's done these things that no other prime minister has because he's enjoying the job and he wants to take on four more years so it and if but for him to be prime minister he's going to need he's going to need political backing so he's going to need the sadrist he's going to need perhaps even elements of of the different sunni parties he's going to need the kurds has he been successful in balancing those so I want to throw, I just want to quickly throw out a figure for you both. It seems that the United States is going to invest approximately $15 million 
into the upcoming election uh, in October in Iraq, assuming it's it's held. Not, of course, in money to go to political parties, so no conspiracy theorists here, but through the UN mechanism to support um, the High Electoral Commission as well as electoral uh, electoral monitors as well as international technical assistance for election. So it seems as if these, you know, assuming they happen, this Octo these upcoming October elections are a set piece in U.S. policy toward Iraq, um, with the idea being that if you can have a government that's more representative of the existential needs of Iraqis, that you can begin to have some movement on the environmental issues, the economic development issues, the wean in Iraq away from energy uh, uh, energy market dependency, as well as potentially improve Iraq's balance between, we'll call it Iran and the resistance axis and the rest of the Arab, predominantly Sunni world. So there's a lot being put into these upcoming elections in October, again, assuming they happen. Uh, and based on what Muqtada has recently said, they might not happen. But I just want to ask the both of you, um, you know, you're sitting in the White House, you're thinking about October. Uh, what is your dream scenario? And what is your nightmare scenario? I would, so I would say, uh, so far we've already seen signs that this election is going to be boycotted um, and uh, wide, widespread across Iraq. Just it seems that uh, Iraqi citizens are just so fed up with the system. Uh, and it's not necessarily just from one thing. It's the it's the two hospital fires. It's the electricity cuts. It's the the rampant corruption. And I th I want to say is something as well. You know, Rush made a good point. Economy is checking the boxes. Um, he's not doing it with a lot of um, it seems like genuine interest, but he's checking boxes just to fulfill a narrative. And for example, with you know disclosing the killer of uh, Hisham. Uh, you know, all these different raids on particular militias. D the timing of them is really interesting because they're always too late or they're not, they're ambiguous or they don't necessarily provide clear names. Um, that implements a good track record of accountability. And so Kadami is just checking boxes. And I think the people are aware of this. The Iraqi citizens are not stupid. Um, and I think that a lot are fed up with the system and this is contributing to this environment. And so I think for the United States, a nightmare scenario, of course, is an election that they've invested so much money, so much money, including the United Nations. I think the United Nations just received a 5.2 million um, uh, donation for the, monitoring the October elections as well. All this money, um, and the election is boycotted and you still have a paralyzed Iraqi government um, and something that either Kadami will continue to be the caretaker prime minister of and have to still do this balancing act uh, or something that, of course, then collapses and enables a lot of these Iran affiliated and aligned militias to take over the political system and really, really um, paralyze any sort of U.S. interest in Iraq. Because at the end of the day, the U.S. looks at Iraq, like you said, Nick, uh, as a as kind of the centerpiece for its Middle East strategy. It is the doorstep for Iran uh, into the Levant and into the Mediterranean. And Iraq needs to be stable. Um, it's not right now, but it needs to be stable for U.S. interests uh, in the Middle East, especially as we pivot to Asia and the Eastern European theaters. So, uh, yeah, I, it, it's it's looking quite grim, um, and I'm not necessarily sure if U.S. interests are going to be realized in this upcoming October election. Uh, yeah, I, I I agree with with Caroline um, completely. I think the worst case scenario 
would be a massive boycott that leaves only the PMF factions and their affiliates uh, and the elections happen, actually go through. In this case, they would have a massive parliamentary uh, victory. Um, that's definitely the, that would complicate things for not just the United States, but also for Iraq. We see that um, at a very, very domestic level, the more you have the sort of, I, I call them the equivalent of the far right, but sort of the, the ultra conservative uh, political elements in the country, the more they dominate, you find, the, you find Iraq even at a very domestic level when it comes to minority rights, women's rights, it, you see how it's definitely, um, taking a st several steps back from, from progress. The recent status law, for example, that's being pushed, it's it's extremely misogynist and it's only it's only possible because of the factions that you have in parliament now, whether they are uh, Sadrists, ultra-conservative Sadrists, or uh, elements of the, of the PMF, uh, of the Fatah Alliance. That's so. That's the that's my that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario that would happen is that you have uh, and there is a possibility that this that this could happen, is that you have new blood coming into the political system from factions that were are not necessarily associated or affiliated with the October movement, but young people that have realized that as Iraqis born and raised in Iraq who do not have second passports, who don't have interests abroad, true grassroots Iraqi politicians, they need their country to work for them. This is the only country they'll ever have. So they're stepping into the political system. And we have a few alliances that are coming together or political blocks that are being formed. If they manage to get a few seats in parliament, even if it's not many, and they make they make a presence, it could encourage others for future elections. And that's how you have that incremental change that happens. Uh, so by the year, I don't know, 20, 30 something, when the elections happen, they will be a significant um, they will be a significant number in parliament. Now, this is given that the security situation is better, that they are not assassinated, because that's a that's a possibility. But because they're politicians, I believe they're they can they can maneuver and perhaps guarantee their security. My another thing, this is also considering that they won't be swallowed by the system and end up being um, very irrelevant or unable to inactive because of how the system is set where it's only the big whales that are the massive players they're the only ones who can actually um they can they're the only ones who 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 matter they're, they're the only ones who decide and we see that we see that in iraq's parliament you have five or six figures that are perhaps the most prominent and everything else is like this you know vested net network of interests uh, just amongst themselves. Uh, so can can a new movement, can young activists, young politicians, not activists, um, can they come and break in that system? That's the best case scenario. Uh, are there are there signs that this is happening? I've noticed that recently there's been a a massive backlash against um, Janine Harris Blaschart, the uh, UNAMI representative of Iraq, and she was usually on positive or at least neutral terms with the militia leaders. But all the PMF uh, affiliates now and Fatah Alliance politicians, they're attacking her. They're accusing her of wanting to overthrow democracy in the country because she's really pushing to monitor the elections. And she's been very, very vocally critical, more than usual, about the situation in the country. So 
is this change going to happen? This is again, sadly, very, very unlikely, but that is the best case scenario just to answer your question, Nick. All right, so because I think this is interesting because in our discussion so far, you know, we started out talking about, okay, how would we grade Kadami's term over, a little bit over a year now that he's been in office? This is a huge visit. Um, you know, there's some, you know, some folks like to quip that Kadami is the prime minister of photo ops, right? He gets his photo op with the Pope. He gets his photo op with foreign leaders, including Jordanian king, the Egyptian president, you know, leaders, all, all these sorts of leaders. But fundamentally, uh, as you pointed out, Russia, that, you know, the house of Iraq is continuing to collapse underneath him. Um, so in a sense, very good photo op, very good foreign policy prime minister um, and designed to be that way. But I want to take a step back because when you hear the administration, the Biden team talk about Kadami, they emphasize him as a problem solver. And you, you're, we're going to probably see today as we record, it's Monday, the 26th of July, the the Biden Kadami visit is uh, meeting is today. Um, you're probably going to hear the administration talk about the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars they're going to invest in, you know, USAID support in the Iraqi economy, um, in the energy sector, agriculture, investing in Iraqi higher education, helping IDPs, just a range of issues that really don't have much to do out with anything outside of Iraq. So I want to ask you, um, is this the beginning of Kadami, the problem solver inside of Iraq? Because since the United States kind of approved, or not approved, we're, we're relatively happy with his appointment of, as prime minister. That has been his role, that he would be a problem solver because he's someone that they can actually talk to, as both Caroline and I pointed out um, earlier. I think that this the U.S. policy, however, the, the points that you mentioned, this has kind of also been, been, been static. This has also been stable in U.S. approach towards Iraq, especially now since USAID is kind of picking itself up after the Trump years. It has more funding now, so they will invest more in the country. Uh, and they have a prime minister that they can actually talk to. So these projects are going to continue. But I also don't think that the United States has, um, the United States is, the administration is being very realist in knowing that Kalami, there's very little he can do, but it's the best option that that Iraq has. It's the best option that that the US has to make sure that Iraq is at least not does not collapse, does not fall under ISIS control, does not fall completely under IRGC control. That's what the U.S. is betting on. It's just that minimal level of stability of the country where Iraq is at least kept one piece. It's not disintegrated. That's what they're supporting. So perhaps not even Kavami in person, just the person who can provide that. And also, as Caroline mentioned, Iraq is no longer high on the priority. It has not been high on the U.S. foreign agenda for a while now. It's going to decrease even more. And I'm not sure necessarily that the U.S. is even concerned um, about a, a necessarily va a necessary vacuum um, because they feel that Kalbani, with his diplomatic relations here with the Middle East, with the rest of the Middle East, with the, with the GCC, uh, he is going to make sure that several different parties are now invested in Iraq, not just Iran. That's the U.S. That's the U.S. vision. Now, do I agree with it? Absolutely not. I think they're underestimating. Not, and this is this has less to do with Kalbami. I just think there's a lot of underestimation with how deeply the IRGC has infiltrated the country, and what their plans are for Iraq, and how they want to guide the country. And Kalbami has very little leverage and very little capability to capability to solve that or do something about it. 
So can I just push back on this point a little bit? Because it does seem actually that Iraq is a bit of a priority for the administration, at least early on in its term. Um, you have Prime Minister Khadami is, I think, the second Arab leader to actually get a visit to the White House uh, to visit President Biden himself. He's going to get a photo op. Uh, he's going to get a whole bag of goodies from the United States. Um, he's going to continue to have U.S. support um, with all that entails. So I guess my question, and he's also, in a lot of ways, um, the key to a U.S. strategy of finding a way uh, to approach Iran so that competition between the U.S. and Iran and Iraq doesn't flare into a larger conflict. And more to the point, competition between Israel and Iran, spe specifically in eastern Syria, western Iraq, doesn't lead to a larger con uh, conflict. So it does seem in many ways Kadami is uh, the fracture point in the region. If he fails, the U.S. approach fails. So I want to ask, Caroline, um, is Iraq downgraded in U.S. policy, or is it something a little bit better than that? I think that when approaching kind of the, the long-term foreign policy game plan, our, our long-term strategy, as we pivot to different theaters, as we look to uh, you know, confront near-peer powers, Iraq still plays a very central role, as you mentioned, Nick. Um, it is going to be one of the bastions of either stability or instability in the Middle East. And this threatens, of course, trade routes. It threatens commercial, financial interests, um, you know, human rights. Uh, a lot of the main agenda items that are on the Biden administration's, uh, you know, agenda. And I also think that, you know, this isn't necessarily the case for the Biden administration, but future administrations as well. So I think you're right. Like, Kadami, in, in many cases, kind of stands between all of this, uh, you know, between uh, potential escalation with Iran, uh, between, you know, a forever war that the Biden administration clearly wants to have an end date with, um, as we've seen with Afghanistan. Um, but at the same time, you know, there is hesitation. And I think for good reason, uh, there's a good reason why we have not seen a full timetable for withdrawal. We're going into our second strategic dialogue discussion um, in, you know, in recent months. And I think that, you know, the fact that we really have not seen much substantial change in what the heck the Operation Inherent Resolve mission is going to be doing in the next two to three years in Iraq. I think that there's a reason for that. And I think that there's just a lot of hesitation of we really do not want Iraq to slip into, uh, you know, complete instability and relative instability. Fine. We can't necessarily change much about that. And we're going to back Khadami, even though he's not necessarily an effective leader. Um, and, you know, I think regarding your, your question before this as well, Nick, uh, you know, reforms, uh, reforms without bite, reforms without kind of a pack in its punch, they're easy to pass. Khadami can definitely look at his tenure as caretaker prime minister and say, I've done X amount of raids. I've done, um, you know, I passed a few reforms on, you know, the electoral system. I have, uh, you know, tried to promote accountability with assassinations. And while they're not necessarily as effective and successful as they really should be, he still has a list of these different, uh, you know, uh, reforms. And, and I guess you could call them mini successes. Uh, and for the United States, it's not necessarily effective. I think the Biden administration should pressure economy. Um, on on really taking it to the finish line, really making it uh, and ensuring that it is um, 
uh, it's fully effective, but I think they'll take it for now. I think that they'll take it for now because the alternative is worse. Um, so I think that, you know, right now, Iraq isn't necessarily holding back U.S. foreign policy. I think that Iraq is definitely one of the main centerpieces of U.S. foreign policy, whether the Biden administration wants to acknowledge it or not. Well, and it's interesting, too, because as you all know, uh, in D.C., everything's China, 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 and China uh, gets something like the third highest or fourth highest, depending on the year, that's energy requirements from Iraq. Also, from the perspective of Iran, if you're going to create a sort of closed sort of multinational economy with the resistance axis that's tied into China's Belt and Road Initiative, you need Iraq. Iraq is essentially the crown jewel in that resistance axis closed economy tied into China's Eurasian and geopolitical ambitions. So it's very interesting too, um, this dynamic. Can I just um, just add something very quickly about that as well? Right, we hear China, 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 and also when we're talking about potential withdrawal in Iraq, there's of course the question of what are the two great powers that the United States is competing with, Russia and China? What are they? What's their game plan in Iraq? I think it is very crucial for the U.S. to not only look at China's relationship with Iran, but also potential, uh, you know, the the potential game plan for Beijing in Iraq as well, just because of that recent 25-year infrastructural plan that China and Iran recently signed just a few months ago. And so, of course, they're looking at this region. Of course, they're looking at Iraq and the potential vacuums that it opens up as you know kind of a playground for you know their economic um belt and road initiative and different economic uh initiatives um and and uh, strategies but at the end of the day i'm not necessarily thinking that you know china is going to look to fill the united states shoes in a security context in iraq uh so it's going to be very important as the u.s looks for a withdrawal timetable as it looks for a new strategy in iraq the balancing game with economy in iran um, how they're going to relate to big powers and uh, and and their competitors in Iraq. That's going to be very crucial for this administration. Um, no, I'm going to have to continue to push back. Now it's like two against one. Um, I do agree that I think we're all at the same. We agree on one thing is that maintaining Iraq's stability is the United States, you know, end goal with with its with its foreign policy approach. But that's it. That's the bare minimum. The United States is not doing anything more. And it's more like, Kablam, you're on your own, Iraq, you're on your own. So, and I don't necessarily even believe that the United States is looking to compete with China um, economically in the country. The thing with, with China is that they work faster and they have the money. And they're coming into Iraq while the U.S. is still present right now as we speak, and America does not seem to be pushing back. Um, so that's the, that's the other thing. I don't, I think that the United States is not its investment in Iraq politically, even security-wise, perhaps that's the strongest thing so far, but everything else has been minimal. It will continue to be that way. The goal is, yes, we're going to make sure that Iraq is at least stable. It does not disintegrate. And this colony is the best that we can do right now, but nothing, nothing beyond that. I think the competition with China is not necessarily Iraq. And let's keep in mind that the United States has allies and partners within in the GCC that rely mostly on China for their imports, whether it's goods, whether it's uh, whether export of oil as well. And that has not really ever been a problem. Um, so regarding this great power competition, I don't think that Iraq is going to be the, the central, the center of it. Um, just because the United States, to be 
to be clear, to be honest, already seceded a huge part of Iraq to Iran already. So it's already Iran already has the massive leverage. Uh, it's just a matter of China, how much China can get. I don't think the U.S. is going to necessarily stand up to that. And I also don't think that that's necessarily something very, very bad. If China can help build Iraq's infrastructure, I don't think the U.S. is going to mind. Well, so that's an interesting point. And I think it's it's important for us to highlight that there is a, current, a political mood right now in the United States that would say, well, why are we spending, let's say, $15 million more on Iraq's dem democratic process when these guys and gals have had almost 20 years to figure it out? On top of the billions of dollars they received from us to establish their democracy and their system to begin with. Now, we all know the issues with the Iraq system, um, as well as the political culture in Iraq. We don't have to go through a seance on that now. But I think it's interesting as we head into the set piece event in U.S. policy with the you know October elections, if they happen. So I have a question for you both. We've, we've kind of danced around this a little bit today, but, you know, this time next year is Kadhimi Prime Minister of Iraq. And then related to that, you know, everyone's talking about Iraq. Everyone's talking about Kadhimi. But who are some actors that will actually be the kinmakers that will determine whether the U.S. approach is correct or not? So given, let's consider that the October elections are taking place. Uh, Muhtada Slander will continue to be a kingmaker. I think that his boycott of the election is temporarily. He most likely will go back. He's done this again. He's waiting for politicians and everyone to go to his home, beg him to come back, feel relevant and important. Muqtada likes these things. And after that, he probably will uh, return. So he has a significant say in the elections. The PMF, the Fatah Alliance, which are the political faction of the popular mobilization forces. You have the Sunni, Sunni pol politics no longer really exist. The two strongest uh, three strongest names of Sunni politicians, Khamis al-Khanjar, political, political spectrum, uh, Khamis al-Khanjar, uh, Hamid al-Halbusi, and the Nujayfi clan. Uh, they're fighting amongst themselves recently. It's been quite a, it's been quite a theater. It's, uh, it's very, very sad to see how it's played out. And both are accusing the other of being wala'iyin, uh, loyal to Iran, which is, uh, which is a new, which is kind of surprising. Unsurprising, but that's how it's being played out. But they also have how how many votes they will obtain is also significant. And of course, the Kurds, Kalami came to power by these alliances. Now, will he stay prime minister? Iraq is very hard to predict. I don't think anyone saw him this time, uh, not this time last year. Let's say when the protest started, no one thought Mustafa Kalami could be prime minister six months later. So Iraq is unpredictable, but I am going to say yes. I think that if the elections take place. If they don't take place, he will continue being the caretaker and it will take another year or so. If they do take place, um, I believe with US pressure and also with other political agreements that, um, and also his current relationship with the Sadrus bloc, uh, that he will, he will have enough, he will have enough to assume four more years. I would add, uh, I completely agree with Russia in terms of the Sadrus bloc, Alliance, um, them consolidating increased gains. And as a result, I could see uh, Kadami or whoever uh, might be in power. I agree it's a bit hard to predict in the next year or two years, but um, I would imagine they're also kind of similar to a paralyzed lame duck-esque uh, um, 
uh, caretaker prime minister. And I think because of that as well, the movement that emerged from 2019 and the protests, that will also become paralyzed and it will also increasingly become a very hostile environment for free speech, for expression. Um, we'll continue to see a lot of these assassinations. And even though the government itself, you may not necessarily see a, um, a incredible majority of the Fatah Alliance or the Sadrist movement, but I, I think that you'll still see their social, e so socioeconomic influence in Iraq increase, uh, and as well as kind of the terror on the streets that they are uh, enacting and, and uh, intimidation tactics and malign influence. And so I think that that is really the political landscape that we're looking at in the next year to two years. Um, and the U.S. is going to be forced to maneuver, maneuver this. It's going to be increasingly difficult. So I'll just weigh in very quickly. I think that uh, the U.S. policy would probably prefer that Kadami remains in place for some extended period of time. I mean, you couldn't design a better U.S. Um, friendly prime minister who also has credibility with the Iranians. I mean, he's, he was, it's almost like he was engineered in a lab. He's a guy who's good with narratives, is a journalist, uh, you know, as Rasha pointed out, it knows how to send winks and nods to the protesters, understands how to talk to the GCC and the Saudis, um, is good with the cameras, but also he was the intelligence chief. So he knows where a lot of the threats are coming from. So I think there is going to be a lot of energy to try to get Kadami in place, at least for the time being, um, you know, to try to water the garden, so to speak, to see some of to see if some of these seeds of democracy bloom. Um, I think fundamentally, though, the problem is, is that Iraq is no longer a cohesive state. It is a geographic space. And so you can't just have a one size fits all Iraq policy. You need to have a policy towards the Kurdistan region, which means you also have to have a policy towards what is Turkey doing in Kurdistan and Iraq. And does that mean Turkey is going to stay in Kurdistan and Iraq for years and years and years like it's set to do in Syria, like it's done in Cyprus? I mean, so that adds some torque to this entire situation. Um, you have to have a policy towards Baghdad. You have to have a policy towards what we'll call the Sunni majority, as well as diverse areas in Nineveh Plain, in Ambar, Saladin, some of these places, they are increasingly becoming a country of pot. You have to have a policy towards the border area itself, um, as our colleague Hassan Hassan likes to call it, Syrac, Eastern Syria, Western Iraq. Um, and you have to have a policy fundamentally towards the so-called Deep South, because in a lot of ways, the future of what we know to be Iraq or if you want to call it Mesopotamia, um, is going to be between is going to be this predominantly Shia on Shia debate. But what does the future of this of Iraq look like? And so I think that makes it incredibly complicated. Um, there is no one size fits all policy. And I think what we'll have to watch is in terms of calibration, which of these several policies in the Iraq bucket ends up being the most important one, and whether any of those overflow into other policy discussions. I just have one quick um, add-on, uh, Nick. I just think that that's a really good point. And because of this, while we'll be looking at the October elections closely, and while, of course, the strategic dialogue matters, and while you know all these questions about economy, they, they do matter to U.S. interests, but at the end of the day, putting all of our stock into economy and expecting him to deliver on all these different U.S. interests and initiatives it's just not going to happen. And I agree where you have kind of more of a local um, strategy 
you work with different governance um, institutions, you work with different leaders, governors, you, you look at the provinces in Iraq, not necessarily just the federal government, um, and you know even even tribal entities as well, that's super important. And so you're right, like having different Iraq strategies in place while still in theory supporting Kadami, but really not putting too much trust um, and hope in into into one man who's just not simply going to deliver the balancing act is just too hard. I think that that's how the U.S. should approach Iraq, and I think that was just a good point. Um, and that the issue is that the U.S. is is doing that; it's just not doing it enough. It's doing it to a level that it almost does not matter. And I I kind of sympathize with America's situation as well because. If the United States were to go at that domestic level where it talks to organizations, civil society, tribes, which are, I completely agree with Nick's assessment about Iraq not being a cohesive state, which is why it's so hard to get it to function properly. But if the U.S. were to invest more in this, you would have other actors on the ground accusing the U.S. of interference. And America does not want that. And there's a, a domestic narrative inside the United States that's very important. That's also deciding most of this policy is that the American people also no longer want to interfere. They don't want any kind of intervention in the country. There is Iraq fatigue, even in the media, where tragedies like the hospital fire don't even make it into the headlines. Uh, so all of that taking into consideration, the U.S. is where it is because this is all it can do. I know for sure uh, that in this administration, there are people that genuinely care about Iraq from a pure humanitarian perspective. They actually feel that they owe it to Iraq to make it work because there, the U.S. invaded the country, it broke it, but it didn't buy it. They feel that they should do something to at least help the country stand on its feet. But these are the options that are available. Um, this is just how I'm going to sort of conclude. You know how I brought up the students being, teacher being frustrated at the student who doesn't do much work, doesn't do their work, and doesn't perform well on the exams, and that's why they get the C-. So Colin gets the C- because we don't think he's not smart. We don't think he's not a good student. We just think he needs to work better. And this is where I agree with Caroline on sort of pressuring you, the point you mentioned earlier, the U.S. kind of pressuring Colony onto things that he can he can perform better at, that he can be better at. And if he's not, the U.S. is kind of also, to some extent, also counting on him um, a lot to balance these geopolitical differences between uh, various states to sort of, you know what, we're going to Take an eye off Iraq. We want to keep you here, Kalvami. You're not our guy, but we trust you because we want to emphasize that Kalvami's not America's guy. Um, that's that's definitely not the not the situation. That's the accusation he receives sometimes. But he's more a person that America can work with. Uh, can he do it? Uh, Kalvami, I don't think can do it. But the also the other thing is that I don't think anyone can do it. If that if that makes sense. So. Rasha, I know that you wanted to conclude with that, but I actually do have a follow-up question for you that I think will, that I think really captures this the, the beautiful way you just expressed this analysis of the perspective within the White House on Iraq and how that interacts with Iraq. Keys, um, look, there's going to be a photo op today, mm -hmm. and it's going to be Kadami, and it's going to be Biden, Biden's first meeting with Kadami face-to-face. There's going to be pictures coming out of that photo op from the White House. What would you tell the, your friends and the administration who care deeply about Iraq, how those pictures are going to play among Iraqis? 
they're going to be, it, it depends. So for the section of the young newcomers to policy who want a good relationship with the international community as a whole, they look at that as something positive. And it is overall, it's, it's not a bad thing that Iraq can, an Iraqi prime minister can actually still go to the White House, despite the fact that the U.S. embassy and facilities are being constantly attacked inside Iraq. That is a good thing. So, and Caroline mentioned this earlier, that that, that diplomatic sort of relationship being maintained is positive. It is positive. But you also have people that are going to say, okay, what's in it for us as the civilians who at 50, the temperature is over 125 degrees, we still don't have electricity more than three, four hours a day. Now in the South, and you mentioned the deep South, the deep South is suffering with water issues. Once again, every single every single year this time around, this is what happens. They there's no there's no drinkable water for them. What's in it for these people? How is that going to help us? And Kavami, because of he he really pushed it. I'm gonna be honest with you, he really pushed it with the photo ops. Um, there's an entire video mocking his photographer, who, by the way, is an excellent photographer. I mean, he's the best. I've never seen a photographer like this, but they've, they're mocking, like, they mock the positions. It's like, call me opening an envelope, call me drinking chai, call me. He's focused so much on it that he's kind of coming across as a narcissist, someone who's become too obsessed with his own image and is not really looking, um, looking beyond that. I would tell the United States to step away from that if possible there was recently something that the, that um the active uh, uh assistant secretary i think did when he reached out also to the same youtuber and he spoke to him that was not a good optic as well it kind of played into that it played into a narrative that just kind of touched iraqis the wrong way um just staying away from the photo, not the photo ops, they're important, but just the optics of things where everything is visual and there's very little on the ground to, you know, to talk about. There's not, there are not so many achievements to actually that can talk for themselves. That would be, that would be the best, uh, that would, that's what I would tell uh, people in the administration. Thank you very much, Rasha. So C minus for Kadami thus far in his term from Rasha. Caroline, <laughs> now that we've all now we've talked it out, what would you give Kadame? It's funny because I, I started with C minus as well. Um, so Rasha and I, like I feel like now we're we're kind of on the same level because at the <laughs> beginning we were a bit you had a lower grade. Um yeah, I'd give him a C minus, but I would like to caveat <laughs> yeah. that with the fact that I would give him an F, right? By like our standards. <laughs> yeah. But I want to add that curve because there are different grading okay. systems and there it would be a curve just because you're right, like the standards are so low you're 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 what how can you define success in Iraq right now when you have a paralyzed governance system mm -hmm. reforms that are really hard to achieve um even though they're half-hearted uh and then on top of that you know the United States looking to withdraw and then you've got also Iran um on the other side with all of these different proxies and militias that are working against you so yeah I'd give them I'd give them a solid C a solid C he's passing um, you know, it, it, there was a curve. He got through this next one, but it's it's very precarious for him looking forward. So I guess I'll take the moderator's prerogatives and go last. Uh, now that we've talked this all out, you know, my view on Kadami is that the curve that I would grade him on is what is it that the U.S. wants from him? And it's changed a bit. Uh, under the Trump administration, it was for him to take the militias head on. In that context, you know, he's 
more where Russia was. You know, he's a, a D minus. Or if you want to be charitable, a D. Um, fundamentally speaking, though, that's not his role anymore. His role with the Biden team is to begin this process of turning Iraq into just another country like Peru or some other country that the U.S. doesn't put a lot of focus and attention on, not because it's not an interesting place, not because it doesn't deserve the attention of Americans, but just because they don't want to have to constantly go there, put out fires and turn into a place that sucks energy, time, resources, and more importantly for them, domestic political capital in the United States and an inflection point in American history. So from that perspective and from that curve, I do believe that Mr. Kadami, as he comes to Washington, gets an A minus. Thank you everyone for joining us for the special discussion on Iraq. We will continue our sentinel stare on Iraq and US policy towards the Middle East here at the New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy. Thank you, Caroline, and thank you, Russia. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, Nick.